Gracious Father, please help me now to speak your words, for you wish to address us from your word, which is truth and which is able to make us wise for salvation. So, Father, please, we ask that you would be with us today and that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When Jesus came into the world, he was very conscious of being on a mission. He had a specific task that his father had given him. He had come into the world to save the world from its deepest problem. And we read there in the gospel reading of how Jesus was hanging around with those awful people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who no one else would want to have anything to do with. And uh, the the, the self-appointed righteous ones, they they grumbled about it. What was the reason why Jesus gave uh, for for hanging around with these awful people? Well, what he said was, I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. His mission was to call the sinners. Jesus said in another place, that he had come with authority to forgive sin. Uh, He also said that he'd come to tie up the strong man Satan so that he could release Satan's hostages. And of course, even before Jesus was born, as we remembered at Christmas last uh, three weeks ago, the angel said that he would save his people from their sins. So Jesus' mission was to save from sin, which is mankind's deepest problem. And knowing that this was Jesus' mission, I wonder how Jesus felt about Genesis 3, the story of the first sin and the beginning of our sin problems. I think Jesus must have known this passage extremely well, don't you? And he must have believed it, as in fact he clearly did from the way that he spoke about the devil. A lot of people feel that the Bible is a bit negative to set up this massive sin problem that humans have right from the get-go. I mean, we're only in chapter 3 of the whole Bible, aren't we? Uh, Some feel that uh, there simply isn't such a problem. Uh, Others feel that perhaps it is there, but we shouldn't focus on it. We should focus on the positive side of human potential. But do you really think it's a bad thing to have an explanation why things are so bad. Uh, My grandmother, who passed away quite a while ago now, a few decades back, uh, she was a celiac. Uh, She couldn't eat gluten. Now, of course, today people are quite well aware of celiac disease and uh, you probably know somebody uh, who has this condition. Uh, You can often get gluten-free things in cafes and restaurants now it's something which doctors test for, and if, if you have that problem, it's likely to be identified. Uh, but for my grandmother, back in the early days of her having this problem in the 1970s, people didn't know so much about it. And she went to all sorts of doctors, and they could not find the problem. Now, when you know that something is wrong, because you see she was having these terrible pains in her stomach all the time, How much of a comfort is it for the doctor to say, oh, we can't find anything wrong with you. You're perfect. It isn't a comfort, is it? If something is wrong, and if I know something is wrong, 
Well, I want to know what it is. Most people can see that there's something wrong with this world. That's why it's not at all a bad thing for the Bible to show us our sin problem. It's actually a good thing because it puts us in a position to seek the cure. So my main aim today in reading this very foundational passage is that we would believe that Genesis 3 is the truth and that we would be seeking help from the one who came as the doctor to sinners. Now, the basic story we know very well, don't we? Adam and Eve were there in the Garden of Eden, which was a paradise. There was nothing wrong. There was no sadness. There was no death. And they were tempted by a snake who turns out to be Satan, though that's not revealed at the beginning of the passage. Uh, They were tempted to break the one and only rule which God had made, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, uh, if you were Satan... And if you had set yourself to try to tempt this man and woman away from their creator, how would you go about it? I mean, they're in a paradise. Their lives are perfect. The God who has made them is clearly a good and loving God who is also all-powerful. And he's only made one rule, which means it's a garden of significant freedom. If you were Satan, you would need to be crafty to tempt them away from their maker. I want you to notice how Satan worked because this helps us to understand what sin really is and how Satan seeks to work on us. This is what he did. He sowed mistrust. He called God's character into question and he made them suspicious of God. You will not surely die, he said. For God knows that when you eat of the tree... You will become like God, knowing good and evil. According to the snake, that one and only rule that God had put in the garden becomes, well, the reason that God has made that rule is apparently to protect his own privilege. Protecting his position as the only one who knows or perhaps chooses is the meaning, chooses good and evil. Now, it's a lie. Right? What Satan says here is a lie. And in one sense, it's not even a very good lie. I mean, why would an all-powerful God need to protect his privilege from these little dusty creatures that he has made? Why would it not be more believable to think that God has a good reason to have put that tree there and a good reason to have said not to eat from it? Adam and Eve should have thought, well, look, we don't quite know what the reason is, but that's okay because it seems a better bet to trust this God who has made us than the snake who has slithered in from who knows where. So it's not a particularly good lie in one sense, but it is a lie which sadly had its intended effect. Eve became captivated by the fruit and the languages of desire. And she ate it. Adam passively went along with the whole thing, which, by the way, does not make him less guilty. The New Testament blames Adam more than it blames Eve. But either way, it's important to notice why this first sin was so displeasing to God. It's because this wasn't just a lapse in judgment. You know, like the the curiosity that made Pandora open the Pandora's box in the Greek myth. This was Adam and Eve saying to God, 
we don't think you're trustworthy. We think you've made this rule because you're a power-hungry tyrant. Now, to be mistrusted, to be suspected like that when you've done nothing to deserve it, well, you and I would find it very hurtful to be treated in such a way, wouldn't we? And in fact, it's always a source of amusement to me that people who have a strong track record of lying always get offended when you accuse them of lying. So how much more is it very difficult to take when you're a a God who is perfect and certainly honest to be suspected of ulterior motives? Now, eventually, when God comes to hold Adam and Eve to account... God's Eve's explanation for herself is, she says, oh, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Which is true, the serpent did deceive them, but it's not a very good excuse, is it? Sorry, God, I got tricked into believing you're a tyrant. See, that's why sin is so grievous, because it mistrusts the good God. It's also why to become a Christian and to be restored to fellowship with God involves faith. It involves trusting God again, giving up on that attitude of mistrust and suspicion. And that is why we should say loud and clear as Christian believers that God is trustworthy and that he doesn't have ulterior motives, that he richly blesses all who come to him. It's important for us to believe that and to say it because Satan continues his messaging even to this very day of saying that God is not to be trusted. And today, actually, that often comes through as people suspecting, sort of assuming that the church has an ulterior motive. Now, the church has done, made dreadful mistakes over the years, but to say that the church as a whole has an ulterior motive, no, that's, that's going too far. And that's somehow how the messaging comes through. It's one of the ways that the devil's message comes through these days. We need to say, no, God has, his motives are good and he is a trustworthy God. Well, anyway, the next part of the story is, uh, is also familiar. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they, they realised in themselves what a terrible idea it had been because they, they, they felt guilty. And this showed itself in this sense of nakedness, and so they went and made these fig leaves uh, to, uh, to, to cover up their nakedness. And even today, uh, we still use the expression a fig leaf to refer to a covering which does a very poor job of concealing something embarrassing. So they felt guilty, but even worse than feeling guilty is actual guilt. A feeling of guilt makes you, makes you feel bad, but Real guilt, actual guilt, attracts punishment, doesn't it? And God came and he punished them for their sin. He punished them with a curse which would stay with us. Now, it might seem unfair for you and me that we've all been born under the curse, haven't we? That was something that Adam and Eve did not have to face. But then again, we've all joined in with the sinning, haven't we? So we can hardly say that we don't deserve to live under the curse. What is the curse? Well, we read about that from chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, God, first of all, curses the serpent, 
that he will eat dust all his life. And I think we're meant to understand from this that uh, prior to this, the serpent uh, wasn't purely a slithering along the ground animal. We're given very little detail about that. Uh, God then turns to the woman and whose punishment is to be difficulty in childbearing, which probably goes beyond just the experience of childbirth, but also the, the, the fact that it is difficult to raise children. Uh, and also conflict with her husband. Uh, To the man, God says that work is going to be difficult. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Uh, Every single one of us, whether we're men or women, has encountered thorns and thistles in our work, haven't we? Uh, Many of these uh, days, these days, many of the thorns and thistles are electronic. You know, when the computer does something wrong with us, and and hinders our work. Uh, Ever since the fall, work has been attended by hindrances and obstacles, mistakes, unexpected disasters which are no fault of our own, unexpected disasters actually which are our fault, and often the need to go back and start a task again. Capping it all off is the curse of death, uh, that we will return to the dust from which we were taken. Because don't forget, God made the man from the dust of the earth in the previous chapter. That's why God also, at the end of the chapter, sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden so that they would not be able to access the tree of life. Now, of course, not everybody believes Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I don't think that anybody disputes that the curses in Genesis chapter 3 describe the world that we live in. They're an accurate description of our world, aren't they? There is pain in childbearing. There is conflicting marriage. There is difficulty in work and there is death. But the choice that the text puts before us is whether we will trust God's explanation about how these problems came into our world whether we'll trust him when he teaches us that these problems entered our world because of sin. (coughs) I do trust this explanation. And what's more, I think that to trust this explanation is the most hopeful outlook you could have on life. Let me show you why that is. First of all, Because the God who has placed mankind under the curse has done so reluctantly and is immediately compassionate on us as we labour under the conditions of the curse. Did you see how, well you didn't actually because we didn't read this far through the chapter, but if you read on those last few verses, even as God is about to send Adam and Eve out of the garden, he clothes them with skins because he knows that the fig leaves they've sewn together for themselves are not really up to the job. See, there's the note of kindness, even amidst the punishment. This is not a God who enjoys punishing. God's kindness to the human race is always there in the midst of the curse. Did you think much about the disaster that took place on an airport runway in Japan 12 days ago when two aircraft collided. Now, this was a terrible disaster because five of the six people in the small Coast Guard plane were killed. But 
everyone on the Japan Airlines commercial flight escaped. That is 200 people who escaped from a burning aircraft. And things could have so easily been very different, couldn't they? Was God protecting them? Yes, absolutely. And in less spectacular ways than that, he protects us every minute of every day from the effects of the curse. It's only when there's a close shave that we're aware of God's protection and even then we often forget to thank him. The point is, we live in a world which is under God's curse, but this is a God who placed the curse on us reluctantly and continues to show kindness to his world as it labours under the effects of the curse. And that's the first reason why believing in the fall is actually a hopeful outlook on life. The second reason why it's hopeful is that it, it, it points to the lifting of the curse. I alluded earlier to the Greek myth of the Pandora's box, which is the Greek explanation for how the world became troubled. When Pandora's curiosity got the better of her, she opened up the box and all the troubles of the world flew out and she couldn't get them back in. So the golden age was over and what that story doesn't contain is any hope that the troubles could be reined in again. Actually, the only little flying object which didn't get out of Pandora's box was the one called hope. The troubles just are out there and there's nothing you can do about it. But you see, in the Bible, God tells tells us the story of the Garden of Eden, not just so that we can yearn after a paradise that is lost, but because God is making a way back to paradise. That was Jesus' mission when he entered the world, to defeat sin and the devil and bring his children back to a new creation that will be better than Eden. So as we go away with this uh, chapter ringing in our ears, let's allow our worldview to be shaped by the Bible. What is the world's biggest problem? Well, it's not the economy or racism or climate change, but sin. That is what Jesus believed, and it is a hopeful thing to believe that, because Jesus came into the world to defeat sin and the devil, and he succeeded at doing so in his triumph at the cross. And finally, I want, I want to say yet again, I want us to go away knowing that God is trustworthy. Uh, Let's not ever be suspicious of God, suspicious of his motives, but rather to trust him. And I hope that we've we've understood a little bit more today of what what trust means. Really, we'll do very well if we understand that it, it does mean the opposite of suspicion. It means that knowing that God is a good God who is straightforward and honest with us, and how could we... How can we think any differently from that when he's presented his son as the sacrifice for our sins at the cross? And so that trust that we have in God then issues in the joyful obedience that ought to mark our lives. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, the enlightenment of reading Genesis chapter 3 and how it explains to us uh, how our world came to be the way it is. We praise you, Father, that not only are you trustworthy and good and that your motives are pure, but also that you, you punish reluctantly and you even show mercy in the midst of punishment. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the one who would defeat sin. And we ask that uh, we would go out today in joyful obedience to you, knowing that you are the good God uh, who has given us hope and who has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.